พุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสามิเราสามารถเรียนรู้ได้ว่าอะไรคือการเรียนรู้ว่าอะไรคือการเรียนรู้ว่าอะไรคือการเรียนรู้ว่าอะไรคือการเรียนรู้ว่าอะไรคือการเ
stop the process and begin the process again. If it's proliferation, the thinking is just going on and on and on and round and round in circles. If it's contemplation, we can think a thought and feel how that thought affects us. It's like a feeling inquiry, this wise reflection. It's not just some mental exercise, rather a feeling inquiry. So we think an intentional thought on a theme of Dhamma or some aspect of life that is calling for our attention. And then we feel how that affects us as we inquire. So, by way of example, I'd like to go through some of these lists this evening. And starting with, well, the beginning one, the goal. What is the goal that of all this practice? The, the Buddha said he realized the goal. What is the goal? And he, the name he used for the, the realization of the goal is Nibbana. And he spoke about Nibbanang Paramangsukam, that Nibbana is the ultimate sukha, happiness. He didn't speak a lot about Nibbana. He seems the teachings emphasize more that which is not uh, Nibbana, that which is not the awakened state, not the state of liberation. And in many ways, on many occasions, directed us to be paying attention to where we're at, which is unawakened and confused. And to learn from that, to study that. However, to have a concept of the goal is tremendously important. The way our minds work, if we don't have a sense of the goal, we can end up our energy being dissipated and not skillfully, usefully, productively directed. So what is the goal? The goal is, well, another way he talked about it is that it's a cessation of craving. There's a, a verse in the Dhammapada, verse 154, 153 and 154 go together, but at the end of it, 154, it says, talking about, he's talking about craving as being like a house builder and how long it's taken him to see the house builder. And now he says, your rafters are dislodged and the ridge pole is broken. All craving has ceased and my heart is as one with the unconditioned or the unmade. So all craving has ceased and my heart is as one with the unmade, the unconditioned. So this is another way the Buddha talked about the goal, the unconditioned. Everything else, he pointed out, is conditions, created, made, relative, unstable, changing. However, he did talk about that which is unmade, unconditioned. For an awakened being, it's the, the goal that they've realized is their identity as this absolutely, thoroughly unshakable state or imperturbable state. And another description in the Mahamangala Sutta, which we just chanted tonight, was the nakampati, uh, imperturbable, unshakable, asokang, griefless, wirajang, dustless, kemang, secure. So these are the kind of words that the Buddha used when talking about the goal. He said, there is a goal, it can be realized, it's the ultimate happiness. And what does it look like? How does it expressed? The awakened state is wisdom and compassion. And so if we're reflecting on what do we think the Buddha was talking about when he was saying we need to cultivate wisdom and cultivate compassion? 
I mean, we have an appreciation of a conventional level of, kind of synthetic wisdom, approximations to that which is truly wise. But the way the Buddha talked about wisdom was it has wisdom has the power to transform unawareness into freedom. Yeah. All the all the pollutions of consciousness, all the distortions of awareness, through wisdom, through seeing clearly, through understanding accurately, all of that confusion can be transformed, all of that dukkha can be transformed. Real wisdom has that power uh, to do that. And then the other side of real wisdom is compassion. Likewise, we're, we're familiar with synthetic compassion. We know what that is and obviously it has its place, but profound compassion, the compassion of a, of a liberated being, is edgeless compassion, and it's the expression of wisdom. And how does wisdom express itself? And it sees through, it understands, and it acts out of compassion. So using these themes to exercise our thinking, reading the scriptures, listening to the teachings, not just going up into our heads and, and getting lost in thoughts. As I go through these lists, let's try and avoid just thinking too much about them. What might have been meant by the goal, by wisdom, by compassion, and by those resources or that which, that which sustains us on the journey. Number three. The three refuges. If we recite in the Pali, Buddhang Saranangachami, this word sarana means, well, translates as refuge. It's like a safe haven. It's a, a resource, a place of security. And when it's translated in Thai, then the Buddhang Saranangachami, ko praput binti pung. May the Buddha be my, that which I can depend on. May I depend on the Buddha. Corporate tham bintipung. May I depend on the Dhamma. Corporate song bintipung. May I depend on the Sangha. The Buddha, we reflect on what, what actually is this? What is it that we're depending on? What is it that we're looking towards that's going to sustain us, that's going to keep us feeling safe, really safe, not just the safety that comes from getting what I like, having a nice warm room and, and pleasant company and so on, but true safety. So what is the Buddha? Why is the Buddha? Why is going for refuge the Buddha so important? The Buddha is, the, is that consciousness that's realized wisdom and compassion. That is the Buddha. This exercise of buddha nusati, or the conscious recollection on the, on the Buddha, Historically, we can reflect on the historical Buddha, the human being that lived in India 2,600 and something years ago, northeast India, and the son of a, a king or a chieftain or a powerful person in the area and destined to become a powerful person himself. And yet he, he gave it all up because he couldn't see the point in pursuing conventional happiness. He had plenty that was agreeable and found it left him lacking. And what was gnawing away 
at his heart was a sense of dissatisfaction, seeing, seeing the sadness of the world, all the disappointment, all the work that people put into their life, and then they just get old, get sick and die. And the thought that that was going to happen to him filled his heart with sadness. And, and the big question, the great question, is there a solution? Is there an answer? Or is it just the sadness? Is there an alternative to being possessed by sadness, distracting ourselves from sadness, running away from sadness? Is there an answer? Is there anything beyond sadness? And this great question arose in the mind. Well, he wasn't the Buddha then. He was Siddhartha Gautama. This great question arose, and he followed that question. Let that question guide him deeper and deeper in developing the skills, the spiritual skills, the mental skills, the levels of competence, until realization precipitated. It was the clear seeing. And the clear seeing was that there is a solution to this. There is a beyond. There is a beyond the way things appear to be. Yes, there's sadness, but sadness is not ultimate. Sadness, disappointment, despair, of course, all beings experience these things. However, there's an understanding of the sadness, disappointment and despair, which means the being is not defined by the dukkha of life, not limited by the dukkha of life. And the teachings that he gave, it's called the Dhamma. So we have the the actual recorded teachings the Buddha gave, we can recollect Dhamma, Nusati, recollecting the words that are recorded and, and recited and, and read. And then there's the practice of the Dhamma, actually internalizing these teachings, you know, contemplating these themes that the Buddha held up, reflecting on these themes, and learning to see for ourselves, learning to see, for instance, seeing that which the Buddha found the end of, craving, and seeing why craving is causes so much difficulty to us. Seeing the difference between wanting and craving. Do we have to get rid of wanting? Well, the Buddha had wanting. The Buddha had motivation. The Buddha wanted to help people. The Buddha was motivated to help people. It's not, we're not talking about getting rid of wanting. What's the difference between wanting and craving? This is what we need to reflect on. Quietly, sensitively, reflecting on the Dhamma. So there's the theory of the Dhamma, then there's the practice of the Dhamma. And then the Sangha, the third of the three refuges, reflecting on the Sangha. The Sangha is the community uh, as a refuge. The Sangha is the, those beings who have realized the point. You know, the Buddha was pointing in a particular direction. And those who have followed the Buddha's pointing and have realized the benefit for themselves those men and women who have come to realize the truth, realize actuality, realize the beyond, the way things merely appear. Uh, we call the Sangha. The conventional Sangha is a monks and nuns who've got robes on and live by the training rules that are laid down by the Buddha. That's one level of the Sangha, and that's certainly got a function, for sure. Then there's also the, the spirit of the Sangha, as I said, those beings who have realized truth directly for themselves. So, number three. Number four, this Dhamma that the Buddha taught, he referred to it 
as a handful of leaves. There's many things like all the leaves in the forest. The Buddha talked about many, many things that he understood and many amazing, wonderful things that we could be looking into and speculating about and, and investing our energy into understanding. However, much of it, from the perspective of his wisdom, is uh, not going to liberate us, is not going to awaken us, is not going to serve to purify the heart from all the confusion. That which serves to purify the heart from confusion is what he referred to as the handful of leaves, these few teachings that I've given. And so particularly the Four Noble Truths comes within that. The Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths, which we're all familiar with. Like last night we were chanting the Dhamma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta. Doesn't give us a lot of things to just merely believe in and tell us that things are going to be great sometime in the future. Rather, it points very directly to what's real and what makes us feel limited, what trips us up, what we struggle over, and we call it, or he called it, dukkha. The experience of limited being or suffering. And the first noble truth is there is this suffering. And and it, it might be a bit puzzling to people, like, why is that held up as the first noble truth? Well, because unawareness, avicca, tends to condition our hearts and minds to avoid the reality. So we all know this reality, we all know what it's like to cry tears of sadness and to feel hurt, to feel disappointed, to feel let down, to feel obstructed. We all know those feelings. And yet, do we really know them? So the first noble truth is it requires uh, inhibiting the tendency to distract ourselves and really turn around and say, this is the experience of limited being. This is the experience of dukkha. This is suffering. This hurts. And the mind goes up and we try to understand it and escape it with thinking and blaming external conditions for it and come back again. No, this, this is it. I was talking this morning to the community about the experience of restlessness and boredom. Boredom can make us feel like uh, something going wrong. What's going wrong? We're just sitting in our room. It's warm enough. We've been fed very well. There's no imminent danger. So what's the problem? The problem is, what? This is wise reflection. We're adding something. We're adding something. But first we've got to actually really register it. Before we can find out what it is we're adding, first we've got to register this is dukkha. This is dissatisfaction. This is limited being. And where's, what's the source of it? Well, the Buddha realized the source of it was craving, tanha. Clinging to desire turns normal, the normal motivation of wanting into something painful, craving. And this is the cause of our suffering clinging to that, being identified as that. I feel dissatisfied. I feel upset. Where does that I get created? It's not there. It's not ultimate. Because sometimes I am happy. So how did this I am upset, I am offended, where did that come from? Well, these teachings the Buddha gave us, we want to look, invited us to look into this, investigate this, in this 
this feeling inquiry. There's suffering and there's a cause to it. And then we can reflect also on the Buddha's teachings of the cessation, of the, the, the liberation, is seeing this and seeing the cessation of craving, which is that stanza from the Dhammapada. My heart is at one with the unborn, the unmade, the uncreated. And then the fourth noble truth is that the expression of that an awakened being lives in the world with these eight factors of the Eightfold Path. Or for those who are unawakened, we study these and reflect on them. Right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We're really dwelling on these, not just learning them so we can rattle them off, but dwelling on them. What is really, what is really meant by right effort? What is right? You know, would have talked of four right efforts in particular, and one of those is the effort to maintain already arisen wholesome states of mind. You spend like the last week we've had this silent practice week, and at least most of us here have had some periods of silence and, and get a little settled and quiet, and there's some benefit comes from that because we're making the effort to not follow habits of just always reacting, particularly around speech. And so we see the benefit. So one of the right actions is how to maintain that benefit, that inner composure remembering, reflecting on, oh, this is what happens if we inhibit the habit to just react and say whatever comes into our mind. What's happened today, we can look at that, like what's happened today after a week of mostly silent for most of you, start talking again. What happens to the mind if we yabba, yabba, yabba? What happens and and how does that affect our, our energy? Not just thinking about it and then countering the thoughts with moralizing, that's not what we're talking about, that's not wise reflection, but rather inquiring, what is the effect, what is the cause? There's the cause, there's the effect. Yeah. So studying these, intentionally thinking about these, exercising this capacity for wise reflection. Number five, the five spiritual faculties, which you've heard me speak about many times before, Santa virya, sati, samadhi, panya, faith, Energy, mindfulness, collectedness, discernment. Why are these identified as, as a priority? Why did the Buddha identify these five faculties and encourage us to cultivate them? And what's the difference between faith and belief, for instance? We can believe in things in our head. You know, like We can believe, for instance, oh, I, I believe the Buddha is the greatest human that ever walked on planet Earth. Uh, the Buddha is the best. Because look at these amazing teachings that he gave. And, and you analyze them and think about them. And they are really amazing. Is that the same thing as faith? Well, when you encounter deep suffering, just merely believing that the Buddha is best is probably not going to be enough to sustain us. If faith is... It's not just happening in our head. It's, faith is more on the heart level. It's a capacity to, to accord with uncertainty without being destroyed by it. It's something that sustains us. It's something that 
keeps us on track. We have faith in the Buddha's teachings. If we have faith in the Dhamma, and faith in the Buddha's teachings on sila, and integrity, and we're under pressure, and the people around us are compromising integrity, and you know, whatever thoughts we might have in our head, if in our hearts we have the, the felt conviction that compromising integrity leads to suffering, that is more likely to sustain us. Reflect on what the Buddha said about it, like in that conversation where the Venerable Ananda was talking to the Buddha about the place of sila. And, and oh, the Buddha said that you know, part of the function of sila is it produces a freedom from remorse. So then there's on this list for this evening's reflection, number six, the field in which we perform our feeling inquiry is the field of the six senses. So when, we, when we see something, we inquire. What is the effect of seeing something agreeable? A beautiful sunrise. A few days ago, I went out for a walk and the sun was just coming up over the lake and it's just on the edge of the stone wall going down the hill there, it just was particularly beautiful. Actually, I pulled out my phone and took a photograph. It was so beautiful. What is the effect when we see something beautiful and liking arises? How does that affect us? Do we get, do we get lost in liking? Because if we do get lost in liking, then we, we see something disagreeable, something that's ugly, then we're likely to get lost in that. How are we going to understand in a way that's going to make a difference? Just having the theory that getting lost in liking and disliking causes suffering, that theory is a pointing in a certain direction. How do we take it deeper? Well, this is what wise reflection does. We, th we think about it, we think about it, we think about it, and it's like it's, it's establishing pathways in our heart, in our mind, so that next time some beautiful sight arises and we're about to follow and get lost in it, maybe there's a chance for, for knowing, for mindfulness, uh, for presence to arise instead of the impulse to just get lost. Mm. Likewise with, with taste. Mm. You eat something delicious and liking arises. What happens to our hearts when we encounter that which is likable? Mm. Are we drawn out to become lost in it. Because if we do, then when the next time you taste something that's really disagreeable, dislikable, something that's rotten or you know, too hot or too salty or burnt, then the disgust or aversion arises. Well, disliking is normal, but what happens when we get lost in disliking? That's something that wise reflection can help us with. Yeah. So the field within which we're performing our inquiry, our feeling inquiry, the, the six senses. Then the seven, the seven factors of awakening. Reflecting on the seven factors of awakening, this, these teachings that the Buddha held up that stabilize the trajectory of this path of practice. These seven factors to 
dwell on them to see if it starts with sati, mindfulness, then goes on to dhammavicca or investigation of phenomena. So there's mindfulness, there's investigation, and then there's energy, very uh, energy, and then pity, joy, pasati or or tranquility or ease, samadhi, collectedness, upeka, equanimity. These seven factors. Why do the Buddha choose these seven? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, let's just reflect on them. Yeah, just if there's no sati, well, basically, if there's no sati, you're not all there. So that's obviously important. And Dhammavichaya are investigating phenomena. Well, some people are of the view that the goodies in life just come to you if you're lucky, or if you happen to get born under a particular astrological configuration, or if your parents are rich, or as far as the Buddha is concerned, the goodies come to us if we do the inner work, if we make the effort, if we generate the energy to do the inner work, which means investigating, dhamma investigating phenomena in a feeling, inquiring way, and energy and joy. So, reflecting on these seven factors of awakening, the Bojanga, as the Buddha called them. And then eight, to end this list of examples this evening, I hope, hopefully you're not being pulled up into your head and thinking about these things too much, but just as examples, you know, reflect on, for me, the eight things I like to think about are the eight points of Dhamma that the Buddha highlighted as a priority in the teaching he gave to the first bhikkhuni, the first nun, the Mahaprajapati, Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, solitude. You can go over and over and over these things. And, and if you feel like your practice is not, perhaps not balanced, or you feel like you're not making progress, or you're feeling uncertain, you can reflect on these things. This is what uh, the Buddha said. If, if your practice leads to these qualities, then it's my teaching, then it's Dhamma. If it leads to the opposite, then it's not Dhamma. Maybe we haven't read a lot. Maybe we don't have access to all the teachers that we want to have access to. We do have this list that we can reflect on. Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, solitude. Reflecting on these, using our faculties. So, as I started off by saying... These lists that we're fortunate to have been given, we can use them in the same way that we might, like, you know, you go to the gym and you work out and you know, on, the, on the bits of equipment in the gym, you, know, you use them to exercise the body. Well, these lists we use to exercise the potential we have for wise reflection. And... Hopefully, with time, the familiarity with this skill becomes more normalized. It's like internalizing, internalizing the habit. Similar to if you're learning to play a musical instrument. Like if you, for instance, you learn to play the violin. One of the first things you've got to do is how to hold it. You tuck the violin under your chin, and then you hold it with one hand, and in a particular sort of a way and place your fingers on the strings in a particular sort of way and then with the other hand you hold the bow and you 
draw the bow across the strings in a particular sort of way. That's the very basics, the mechanics, and you've got to learn. And then learn how to manipulate uh, the, the strings and putting pressure on the strings so as to create certain tunes and have very, very simple exercises over and over again until until there's a certain internalization of the potential of this musical instrument to make beautiful music. So these themes that we're encouraged to dwell on, it's not just to get the information and then spout the information, that's a limited benefit, rather to exercise the ability of the mind to reflect on things that are truly relevant. If wisdom and compassion if, is, is what we're interested in, if that really, if that inspires us, if that lifts our heart up, rather than just becoming wealthy or becoming popular or becoming an influencer on, on the internet, yeah. if wisdom and compassion inspires us, then these are the kind of exercises that we could be spending our time dwelling on with the aim of cultivating the ability to reflect wisely. If you think of if you think of these traditional themes that the Buddha gave us as like a fruit tree, they're like the trunk and the branches, then the leaves of the tree, that's like our own contemplations. These themes that we've been given by the Buddha and by our teachers, these are like the, the trunk and the branches and then the leaves and the flowers, that's, that's like our own reflections, our own contemplations. And then the fruits that come, that's the insights. That's the result of wise reflection, skillful contemplation. And in the process, it's inevitable that we'll feel an affinity with particular aspects of the teachings, like the, you know, most of you are familiar with the Buddha's teachings on the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, and each dukkhanata. If you, as you reflect on these things, it's, it's quite likely that you'll, you'll feel an affinity with one of them. One of them will just kind of click. Personally, I like reflecting on not-self, on anatta, inquiring into who, just asking the question, who doesn't want to suffer? Who wants to know? Who is asking these questions? I find that very interesting. Other people, it might be the characteristic of impermanence or the characteristic of, of dukkha and satisfactoriness. So finding what makes sense to us and until we are inspired to and we find until we find ourselves capable of engaging life in a reflective way, not just in a reactive way. And when life hits us with something disagreeable, it's easy to react and go up to our heads and say it shouldn't be this way and blame somebody for it or to physically distract ourselves and eat something. And, and how about when life hits us with something that's challenging and like you know, if we find that our mind is always judging, judging ourselves, I'm not good enough, that person's not good enough, I don't want to have to live with that person anymore because they're like this or they're like that. 
compulsive judging mind. If we if we notice that tendency, we can follow it, keep following it, spend a whole life following it, and then as you're dying, you're judging yourself for not having lived a proper life and judging the medical people for not looking after you properly. And, um, terribly sad situation to be in. An alternative is to, if we notice the compulsive judging tendency of the mind, is to inquire into it. What is this compulsive judging tendency? Where does it come from? And remember, we're not just working up in our heads, but really asking our hearts, asking our guts, uh, where where does this come from? Yes, our head will have something to say. We can reflect on how we were brought up and the particular education that we were given and which always emphasizes knowing about things. We get an education that's pitting right against wrong and should against shouldn't. And so it's perfectly understandable that we've got a mind that tends to always be judging. Look a little further and say, well, judging's got a lot of benefit. Being able to discriminate in situations what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, that's absolutely suitable. We wouldn't want to get rid of that ability to discriminate. So where's the real problem? So feeling into, looking into, until we say, oh right, it's actually clinging to that tendency. It's making that into a self, where the disease of selfism takes over. And I am as good as I am able to discriminate. Which again is perfectly understandable, that's the way we were programmed. And put our hands up and say, oh, I know, and I understand. And we get praised for spouting our views and opinions. And however, what that leads to is being identified with the discriminating mind, clinging to it until it becomes hyperactive and we can't stop it. We start to see that. If we really see that, then we can ask ourselves, well, is there a way out of that? Already we've loosened the grasp on it. Already we're not so identified with the compulsive judging mind anymore and we start to find a way that perhaps eventually we'll learn to letting go of it. Or if life hits us with something that really stirs up an intense sense of aversion, irritation, annoyance, anger, hatred, well that's clearly suffering. If we reach the stage of hatred, well, that's really painful. That's hell, basically. And, and who's to blame for this hatred, really? You know, maybe you, you see something that you just find offensive, and maybe you see somebody behaving in a bullying way, and they're, they're just chilled. They don't even know that they're caught up in, in, in such behavior. and They're just getting around being a bully and getting what they want, and, and you're sitting there really suffering, you know, really suffering, getting all hot under the collar and feeling offended by it. Is that helping anybody? Is that helping us? Is that helping them? Are we helping them get to see what they're caught up in? So we need to feel more deeply, inquire more carefully. And these themes that the Buddha gave us, you know, like the real cause of suffering, it's, it's not... It's not feeling aversion towards that which is ugly that's the problem. It's perfectly understandable. When your nose smells something offensive, of course there's dislike that arises. However, do we have to cling to that dislike? If we do, and we don't understand it, then we project that bad feeling out. 
we then suffer and then we blame the external conditions for our suffering. If we slow down, if we're honest, if we exercise these potentials that we have to reflect on the the Buddha's teachings, that maybe we'll get to see what we're doing in the moment, eventually what we're doing in the moment that's making suffering. So this skill that the Buddha identified and something that Ajahn Chah talked about um, is something really worth cultivating. Uh, I sometimes reflect on the word that they have in Thailand for, the, for contemplation, which I used to hear and I listened to the talks in Thai, there's this expression, Pūt Gap Chit Kong Jiao Kong, which it means contemplation or wise reflection, but what literally what it means is speaking with your own heart. Pūt Gap, speak with Jit, Jitta, your heart. Kong Jiao Kong, your own. Pūt Gap Chit Kong Jiao Kong, they just rattle it off. Pūt Gap Chit Kong Jiao Kong, which means speaking with your own heart. And if we could bring this to heart, bring this to mind as a particular skill, a particular competence that is worth cultivating. So I hope this evening these reflections will perhaps trigger some useful contemplations. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.